Good early evening and late afternoon, dear listeners. You're listening to the Sunday Afternoon Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 24th of September, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is neglect in education. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good late afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 48th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your lovely company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any new potential listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have been living in the United Kingdom since August 2008, and I am a professional educator, working in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages, mostly French, but also a little bit of Spanish on the side, coupled with some PSHCE lessons. I also have experience as a kindergarten teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter slash X at prof prof MFL. All views expressed on this show and on X slash Twitter are my own. Today, I would like to focus on a topic that is relevant to me as an educator and also as a parent and as a teacher and worker. The podcast and discussion will be on the topic of neglect in education. This is mostly relevant to teachers, educators, lawmakers and legislators, hopefully, as well as parents and their children, people interested in social justice and human rights, as well as the curious and well-informed. So first, we need to look back at the meaning of the term neglect. What does neglect mean? Well, generally speaking, and in, con in the context of giving care or caregiving, neglect is a form of abuse where a perpetrator, usually a parent or a guardian, or someone with a position of authority, is responsible for caring for a child, and this child is unable to care, to care for themselves because they are too young. And in the case of a neglectful upbringing, the carer or guardian fails to take care of the child properly. It can be a result of carelessness or indifference, unwillingness or not being able for multiple reasons. But it is defined as abuse. If we look at the 
government papers and you can check there is um um paper that's published on the gov.uk website about neglect and it says that neglect is when someone in a position of authority persistently fails to meet a child's basic needs children's basic needs can be physical but they can also be psychological and neglecting these essential psychological and physical needs of a child can seriously impair the growth of that child and impair and damage the child's health or the child's development. Neglect can sadly happen before birth, in utero, during pregnancy, as a result of maternal substance abuse or malnourishment as well. But once a child is born, it's not just um, the mother's responsibility, it is any caregiver and the whole state. And neglect can also be inflicted by other institutions. Now, any child has to have a carer or a guardian who provides adequate food, clothing and shelter. It, there's, the child also needs to be protected from danger, whether it is uh, traffic or um, other human beings who could have potentially uh, who could potentially hurt the child. So there is a duty of protecting a child from physical and emotional harm or danger, as well as this safety physiologically. We also have an duty to ensure adequate supervision, making sure the child is not left alone and that is the child is properly cared for. And finally, there is a duty to make sure the child accesses appropriate medical care or treatment, which means that if a child breaks a bone, they have to be taken to hospital. If a child has diabetes, they have to have their insulin checked daily. And um, this is the duty of anyone who is in charge of a child. Being unable to respond to a child's need is also a form of neglect. So this is the definition according to the UK government. Now, if we look at the number of children who have been neglected, we do not have the actual figures of all the children who have been neglected physically or emotionally. But the figures we have that are clear stats are the number of children who are looked after by the state. And usually these children are looked after because their original caregiver, that is to say their parents or guardian, couldn't do the, 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 their duty properly. So the number of children who are looked after by the state, the acronym is CLA. So this number is on the rise. And this year, we have 82,170 children who are looked after by the state, with an increase of 2% from 2021. How many does it mean if you look at the general population? It means that out of 10,000 children, 70 of them are not living with their parents or guardian. They are looked after by someone else that has been chosen or designated by the state. Now, we also have numbers of children who are uh, looked after because they are not 
with any family member because they are children who are refugees or immigrants in need of papers, identification papers or visa or passport. So that number is also on the rise by shocking 34% since 2021. And the number of children who are unaccompanied immigrants has reached 5,570 children, which is quite a big number. They are usually children who are in their late teens, but not always. So in 2022, the number of children who are looked after by local authorities in England rose by 2%, as I said. This can be explained by the aftermaths of the pandemic. But sadly, before the pandemic happened, there were already a high number of children who were looked after. Of all these children, 82,000 and more, only 2% of them, um, so the number of children who are adopted is up by 2%, which is a good thing, but very, very small compared to the number of children who are in an insecure situation. This is a modest increase because we had, um, during the pandemic, a, a shortfall of adoption because all the process was stalled due to lockdowns and it was a decrease of 18%. Now, I was mentioning children who are unaccompanied. What does it mean? It means that they arrive in the country alone. And these children are asylum-seeking children. The acronym is U-A-S-C, Unaccompanied Asylum-Seeking Children. So that number is really on the rise and it's a shocking rise of 34%. So in general, we could check on the health of these children who are looked after. But during the pandemic, there was obviously uh, social workers who had to stay in lockdown unless there was an emergency. So we have also data that reflects this. But we need to remember that um, the number of times these children could access a GP or dentist has really decreased during the pandemic. And we still have um, a backlog of children who need essential primary medical care. Now, if we look at the number of looked after children, you will be, um, you won't be surprised that a lot of them, the majority of them, that is to say 74% of them are white British, which is explained by the fact that we are in a white uh, British country. So it's representative of the general population. Um, but there's quite a high number of children who are mixed race, who are looked after. It reaches 10% uh, of the under 18 population, which is a little bit higher than the actual representation of mixed race children in the general population. Very few children from Asian or Asian British background um, are represented. And then uh, even less uh, from other ethnic backgrounds, such as Chinese. So we have a high representation of white British and also mixed race and black or black British boys in particular in the number of children who are looked after, which means that they have to have the institution stepping in because they were neglected in their household. So white children 
are less likely to be looked after, but they are more likely to be adopted compared with their share of the population of all under 18 years old. And sadly, black children are more likely to be looked after and less likely to be adopted compared with their share of the under 18 year old population. So there's only 5% of children as a whole in the country who are black, but they represent 7% of the children who are black and adopted. And now uh, white children, more likely as well to be um, looked after than in the general population. So half of children who went into care for the first time after the 2011 census, if we look at their background, how come that these children needed to be taken into care? Well, if we look statistically, they follow a certain profile. Children who end up in care who have been neglected are usually from lone parent household and they are more likely to suffer from severe deprivation which means that they are also um, more likely to have been living in rental accommodation, council flats, having experienced greater deprivation due to financial circumstances and they are also more likely to have poor or low attendance at school. Health, education and housing are very, very difficult for these families and this might explain why they are more likely to end up in care. Access to health, access to education, access to housing seems to be the sort of background. Difficulty accessing these three uh, important resources seem to explain why these children end up being neglected and afterwards taken in care. And amongst the children who are taken into care by the state in the United Kingdom, mostly boys will end up being in children's home or young offenders institution, whereas girls are more likely to be fostered. So here we can see a discrepancy between um, where children end up and they, it's based on gender there. So what are the deprivation that these children endure before they are taken into care? Well, there is usually a household that is struggling with multiple factors, but some children have to struggle with one of these factors and some have to struggle with the four main fra uh, factors. So these four dimensions are employment deprivation. So it means that there is a household where someone might not be able to work. It might That person might not be able to have a full-time job due to health reasons or because they're in education or because they are um, unable to keep a, a job or they are, they are on long-term sick. So in these uh, situations when a household faces severe neglect, there is often employment deprivation. Another dimension of deprivation that these children experience is education deprivation. This is not the education of the child per se, but the education of the people who are part of the household. So they are less likely to have obtained their GCSE at grades 
A stars to C or equivalent. And sometimes there's no person aged 16 to 18 who is in full-time education. So another uh, factor, employment deprivation, as we said earlier, but also education level deprivation. Now, the third dimension is um, quite a shocking one in a developed country and it's access to health. Health and disability deprivation is where a household member has a general poor health, which has an impact on how this person, this adult or caregiver is able to provide for a child. So it might be very different um, excuse me, might be very different situations. It might be someone who is uh, having a terminal illness, someone who is um, having to undergo cancer treatment, someone with an addiction. It could be many, many different diseases. But the fact is, this impairs the way the child should be taken care of. And the last dimension that explains why some households are deprived and then this has an effect on children, it's housing deprivation. Housing deprivation is where the family lives in a dwelling that is not fit for um, human life. So it could be either overcrowded with an occupancy rating uh, that is negative, or uh, it could be a shared dwelling or it has no access to central heating due to um, issues with the actual build of the household or because there is no money to pay for the electricity meter or the central heating. So children who are neglected in the United Kingdom suffer from either one or a combination of these four factors, employment deprivation, education level deprivation, health and disability deprivation, and housing deprivation. Now, you are um, able to say at this stage that education deprivation might be something that is difficult to solve if it's a family member who has missed a lot of education in their childhood. But housing deprivation should be something that could easily be remedied because we have a state that collects taxes and could spare some of the financial um, money, the, the money that is collected in order to provide decent housing for children. And we are not in this situation at the moment in 2023, which raises concern. Now, I did mention that there was um, education level deprivation in many of these families that end up having children who are neglected. But there is also a very interesting statistic and it's the attendance statistic. Because according to um, the government, school absences and exclusions have been analyzed. There was um, analysis of the growing up in England, GUIE data set, and this data set shows that there are huge differences in school absence rates, authorized and unauthorized, between the children who are staying with their families and the children who are taken into care. So when we looked at data between 2011 and 2015, we realized that school absence is a big factor in 
children being taken into care. So school attendance used to be, even before the pandemic, a symptom of deprivation. Now, a little over a third of children who are taken into care, which is 35% of them, will um, at least have one school absence, up to 15% of school time in a year. And sometimes 6% of these children not in care also had a lot of absences. So children in care who are absent from school are more likely to miss more school sessions than children who are not in care, which creates um, a vicious circle because the more neglected you are in your household, the more likely you are to be absent from school. The more you are absent from school, the less support you can get from the institution and the less education you receive and then it seems like it's perpetuating education deprivation. So attendance statistics are really important. There is a correlation between neglect and school attendance. And it's interesting to note this because at the moment school attendance is really impacted by COVID and afterwards now it seems like a lot of children are still missing from the schools they should be in. Now, if we looked at the if we look at the number of children who are um, looked after and are unaccompanied minors and asylum seekers, the number has been increasing due to the migrant crisis. This started in the uh, years 2000. So we have data from 2004 all the way to 2022. In 2004, we had 3,000 children who were immigrants, asylum seekers, and unaccompanied. And now we are reaching uh, slowly but surely 6,000, so almost doubling. This is very serious because it means that these children have no one to take care of them. They have no one to uh, raise the alarm if they disappear and they can be the targets of um, drug cartels, gangs, um, sex trafficking rings, etc. So this is a lot of unprotected children. Now these children are usually mostly um, black, African, Caribbean or black British, Asian, uh, British, or other ethnic groups. So we do not always know the ethnicity of these children. What we know is that they come from low income countries. They usually flee from war zones, um, persecution and dictatorships, and they're extremely vulnerable. So we do not have all the information we need because these children disappear from um, when, whenever they arrive in the UK, they sometimes disappear. So we can't follow up and we can't keep the data um, clear and objective. Now, I mentioned neglect. Um, when a child's needs, basic needs, not a need for a telephone or mobile phone or uh, entertainment, but basic, basic needs. But they are multifold. Children can experience neglect in a medical way when they are not taken to see a dentist, if they have uh, an abscess in their gum, for, for instance. They can be neglected nutritionally when they're given food that is not covering their 
a basic diet diet needs. Um, they can also be emotionally neglected if they are gaslighted, ignored, if they are uh, maligned and rejected on a daily basis. They can also be uh, neglected educationally if no one ensures that they attend school or that they receive a good quality education. They can also be neglected physically if they are uh, unkept, unwashed and uh, attacked physically and bruised. But lack of supervision and guidance is also a form of neglect. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that neglect is defined differently according to the country we're in and to the, the era we live in. Um, it was the norm in the 60s for many, many young children, uh, primary school age children, to make their way to school alone. Um, I remember an interview of the Icelandic pop singer Björk, who said that in the 60s, she used to walk to school in Iceland and she had her key around her neck on a, on a little um, necklace. And that was, that was just normal. Nowadays, if a six-year-old was walking to school with their keys, house keys around their neck, we would call social services. So it is important to remember that the definition of neglect changes and it's evolving. So since the 80s, I would say we started adding lack of supervision and guidance, but in the 70s, it might have seen as absolutely normal to tell the children to go out all day and only come for dinner and not provide them with a water bottle or a packed lunch. Um, it's not acceptable anymore. So sometimes it can also be cultural because if we come from a different country, we might not realize that the level of neglect is seen as something that is detrimental. Some people might think it's independence building and some others might think that it's actually um, neglectful. So it is very important to, to check social mores and social norm norms when we talk about neglect because it varies according to the country, the era and also the social class. In middle classes, um, in middle class households, you have the new um, definition of the parent with the helicopter parent. This is definitely something recent since the year 2000, but it's becoming a little bit more like the norm. And if someone is seeing parenthood differently, sometimes they might be seen as neglectful. So it's important to stay objective on these issues. As I said, there is a government paper entitled Childhood Neglect Improving Outcomes for Children, and it's a handout and it's available on the government website. You can always check it if you want to see exactly what the definition of neglect is currently in the UK. But before we get into um, how neglect, neglecting children has an impact on education, we're going to listen to the news. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, 
specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is considering significant reform of air levels in England, which, according to the BBC, could see the introduction of what it calls a new British baccalaureate. The PM's plans could include the compulsory study of maths and English up to the age of 18, as reported in the Daily Telegraph. It's not the first time Mr Sunak has considered a shake-up, having previously said during an unsuccessful leadership campaign last year that he wanted all young people to study maths to 18. Foreign Office Minister Andrew Mitchell told BBC Radio 4 that he expects Mr Sunak to agree to reform of the education system and said the government will be guided by the best expertise on how we ratchet up standards. Concern about any proposed changes have already been raised by unions and other post-16 professional associations, particularly around the existing issues of recruitment, retention and concerns around workload. A spokesperson for the Sixth Form Colleges Association said the post-16 curriculum was narrow by international standards and this was partly reflective of chronic underinvestment in sixth form education since 2010. The BBC also features an article on the fall in numbers of students being accepted into universities in the UK, the first fall in five years. Applications also fell after demand rose during the pandemic. Fewer students got into their first choice of university this year, but more qualified for their second choice are accepted places through clearing. The new data from UCAS shows 270,350 UK 18-year-olds were accepted onto a course this year, down from 275,390 in 2022. UCAS says the figures show a return to normal growth following the surge of demand seen during the pandemic. Data for individual universities is not yet available. Last week on Teachers Talk Radio News, we featured reaction to the latest data published on suspensions and exclusions. In a linked story, Schools Week has published further analysis, this time focusing on data from schools linked to incoming Ofsted Chief Inspector Sir Martin Oliver. The analysis reported in the article suggests the Outwood Grange Academy's Trust secondaries excluded twice as many pupils as other schools in some of their regions. At a pre-appointment hearing before the Education Committee last month, Sir Martin was challenged by MPs over the Trust's high suspension rates. Sir Martin responded, Our figures for permanent exclusions are lower than most in the areas in which we work. Schools Week says the data for the Trust's 13 secondary schools in Yorkshire and Humber had a 0.31 exclusion rate, the equivalent of three in every 1,000 pupils compared to 0.17 across the region's other secondaries. In the northeast, the Trust's seven secondaries had a rate of 0.64,
compared to 0.3 in others. Kim Johnson, the only committee MP to vote against the appointment of Sir Martin, said he should be brought back to answer for his words. Frank Norris, an education advisor for the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, said the original comments could be viewed as misleading. A trust spokesperson told Schools Week that Sir Martin was comparing exclusion rates between some individual outward schools to some of the other schools in the same local authorities with similar profiles. Spokesperson also added that the schools had been underperforming for years and had now been transformed by the trust. More details of the Schools Week analysis and full commentary can be found online. In Ireland, the Irish Independent reports on what it calls radical changes in how students are assessed as being on the way in a move to combat the threat of AI platforms such as ChatGPT. Higher education colleges are already being told to abandon certain forms of assessment because they are no longer sufficiently robust to award scores which count towards official grades. These include do-at-home assignments or essays, unsupervised online assessments and multiple choice quizzes which are conducted online. There will be greater reliance on oral assessments to check understanding and systems to identify if students have cheated by using AI. However, colleges are being told to resist any temptation to switch back to traditional end-of-semester formal exams. Instead, they should consider short-term re-weighting of assessments whilst they formulate a long-term plan. Finally, this week saw Education Secretary Gillian Keegan comment in the House of Commons that children she had visited in schools affected by poor quality concrete, known as RAC, had been petitioning me to stay in the porter cabin because they preferred it to the actual classroom. Ms Keegan's comments were met with derision by many, saying it showed a chronic lack of understanding of the poor quality facilities schools had been using for many years, particularly since the cancellation of the project to rebuild many schools. However, Downing Street defended the comments, saying it reflected a conversation with children and that the department and leaders had worked hard to make sure children had been unaffected by the current challenge. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Right, thank you dear listeners for listening to the news. Um, I um, was about to start talking about the effects of neglect for children in education and I think it's important to remind ourselves that a lot of children are still facing such extreme neglect that they have to be taken into uh, care by the uh, government which is 80,000 children. This number doesn't show all the children who are experiencing uh, levels of neglect. Uh, we usually end up having children into care who are experiencing multiple types of neglect but those who only have one or two might just stay in their family in their household so the number might be much higher now i wanted to think about what schools do when they face children who are neglected and we know that schools have a duty to teach children and to socialize them and educate them um, but we have seen during the pandemic that a lot of schools also provided food supplies organized food banks, um, they collected 
secondhand clothing, they offered guidance, they helped uh, filling forms to apply for extra help. Um, they also offer support for mental health care. So schools are already doing a lot more than just providing um, education and learning. Now, what do teachers experience when we talk about neglect? I want to briefly mention what one of our dear listeners has been sharing on the chat. We have Paul, who's been uh, explaining what he goes through in his um, in his work. He says that um, he has found the number of children who are not toilet trained increased. Um, and when we mean not toilet trained, it means that they might have been uh, toilet trained, but not to the extent that they're actually able to not need a change of clothes. And it used to be the norm in reception that all children had to be toilet trained. So now we have teachers who end up having to toilet train children the way a nursery teacher should do. Um, Paul was also saying that children haven't learned skills to feed themselves and they can't hold a pencil properly or um, they can't really count. And we know that counting is an important skill. Um, Rishi Sunak, the current prime minister, says he wants students to study maths all the way up until they're 18, but it needs to start early. <laughs> and if they are not able to start counting, it's because no one took the time to teach them at home. So there's basic skills that you would think are what a parent does with their child, like counting peas or alphabet pasta or counting socks or counting conkers. This is not done with the child. And um, this adds to the workload of teachers. Now, um, we mentioned as well that during COVID children missed education, but some of them are not back and they almost disappeared from the safety net that schools represent. And Paul was saying that he's uh, currently working in a deprived area and he has the feeling that parents have given up on their uh, parental responsibility in as such as they think it doesn't matter if my child doesn't know how to do this or that because the teacher or the school will teach my child. So there is a general feeling that people are a bit more apathetic um, why are they feeling like that? Um, this is something we need to explore. Maybe it's because they're experiencing these four dimensions of uh, neglect at home due to life conditions. But the, the issue is that the children are not reaching the milestones that they should reach before they even join school. So what do teachers face at work? And I speak, I'm sure, in the name of many teachers who work in deprived areas, but not only in deprived areas. Remember, emotional abuse also happens in very well-off families. Um, but in deprived areas, what we see is children who are not clean, children who come with dirty clothing, children who smell because they do not have showers or they are not told to shower or there is no not enough facilities for them to shower we have uh, children who come hungry and then we need to give them food from the staff room because they can't focus because they're hungry we have children who come to school and they complain they can't focus because they have toothache 
and they have abscesses in their gums that are untreated. We have children who need glasses and prescription glasses, and they say they can't see the board when they're seated at the front, but the parents don't take them to um, an optician, so they don't get their glasses. Uh, we have children who don't sleep enough. I've had students in year nine, so they're age 13, who told me that they spent the whole night playing video games and that they went to bed at four in the morning and that they're too tired to focus on their lessons. This is something I've heard in my classroom. We also have children with undiagnosed conditions. Um, we noticed that some children have digestive problems uh, and that they need to see a doctor, but for some reason appointments can't be made. Is, is it because of long waiting list for the NHS? Is it because parents are too busy to take their children? Uh, or is it because they do not want them to see a doctor? We don't know, but the effects are that we have children who are unwell physically and they're in class. Um, we also have parents who refuse to get their children assessed when we assume that they have a special educational needs, which slows um, the diagnosis and it prevents the children from getting access to maybe a teaching assistant or extra time for their exams. Um, and also we have children who are in physical pain due to untreated illnesses. We have, we sometimes have st students who are um, diabetic and um, are not receiving the treatment they need. And then it can lead to a coma and, and death in extreme cases. So teachers are faced with very serious illnesses that they're not trained for. Um, and yet this is our daily, daily practice. We have to deal with children who are in pain, children who are uh, hurt, uh, children who are hurting. And we end up having sometimes to call parents and tell them to book an, a GP appointment. And then we have to call again a week later and ask if the GP has seen the child. So it is having a massive impact on learning because if your child is lucky, well cared for, has parents who love and cherish them, they might have schoolmates who are not um, well cared for, schoolmates who are neglected. And because the teacher has to now attend to these extreme physical needs, they might have less time to teach your child how to learn the subject they want to learn. So this has, uh, obviously, this is a vicious circle I'm describing, long NHS waiting list, difficulty to get a GP appointment, parents who work long hours, um, parents who can't always take their kids to the doctor, and then it has an impact on uh, in the classroom. So this is talk of experience here and in younger years we have also children who are not talked to and whose vocabulary is very poor um, and children won't be equipped to learn more because no one reads them bedtime stories i have met many children who live in households where there's no books uh, some children do not have beds um, some children live in a one-bed flat with two parents, siblings, and a grandma. So expecting them to be able to have the mental space to do their homework and to be uh, on time when they have to share a bathroom with six or seven or eight family members 
is unrealistic at best. So it is really important to understand cause and consequence in these situations because too often um, teachers are expected to have good GCSE results for their students in year 11. Uh, and offset will look at uh, results and parents will look at results, but they forget that maybe these teachers are busy making phone calls regarding glasses and abscesses and gums and and prescription glasses. So we need to look at the the local community and see what goes on and as far as levels of deprivation are concerned before we can analyze um, leak table data or exam results. Now I'm going back to the live chat and um, I can see that Paul has added uh, some reflections on his experience of working with children who are being neglected. Um, Paul says that the number of parents um, that he has to refer to parenting courses has increased. So um, you can see that Paul has a role where he's, he's basically like a health visitor or a health counselor, and he guides the parents who are not always equipped. As I said, the vicious circle acts over generations. If you are in a household with education level deprivation, um, they, the parents won't be able sometimes to read the prescription from the doctor. They won't be able to express themselves um, when they need some help with the GP and this has an impact on their child and, and then the child will have an imp it will have um, a domino effect. Um, and um, Paul also says that there's a lot of refuse refusal on behalf of parents uh, due to stigma. They do not want to be seen as failing their, their children. Uh, there's a mix of guilt and sometimes anger against institutions because the parents might have had poor experiences of dealing with GPs and teachers in the past. So it, it makes for a, a very difficult a situation where there's a lack of trust, a lack of collaboration. Um, Paul also talks about diets, and this is something I've always been really shocked by when I moved to the UK. Um, when I moved to the UK, uh, Jamie Oliver was trying to change school uh, dinners for children, and he was hitting a wall uh, with parents who were bringing um, fish and chips or burgers to their children and refusing, absolutely refusing for their child to sit and have uh, a meal made on the school premises. I've seen, uh, when I was a teaching assistant in Bristol in a state school, I've seen children have a flake for their lunch. Um, the ice cream van would come in at the lunch time. You could hear the bell of the school announcing uh, lunchtime and also the ice cream van and the children had 40p at the time it makes you realize the level of inflation we are enduring uh, for 40p the children could have a flake and they would just eat an ice cream cone for lunch so diet is a big issue we know that children who are malnourished uh, can be uh, skinny but can also be obese and there's an an obesity crisis in the uk and you can see it because these children have um, lots of sugar in their diet, so they're a bit hyper, and then they have these low mood moments. They do not get the nutrition they need to have a functioning brain, and this affects their development and their resilience, etc. Domino effect again. Um, 
Paul is also mentioning something I forgot myself to mention, and that is energy drinks. I did mention that one of my year nine was playing video games all night and then was too tired for lessons, but he would come in the morning with a bottle of Luco, not not saying the whole words, uh, I'm not promoting this type of drinks, but yes, this is what they drink, this is what they eat. Um, we know that the poorer the area is, the more a chip shop there will be, the less access to um, vegetables there will be. So it is it is really a deadly cocktail. Our children, and it's, it's thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of children who are deprived of a healthy diet, they're deprived of a healthy routine, and they're deprived of a healthy house house to live in. So we are preparing our children for failure when we let this situation go on after after many many years um i would like to now go back to the situations that schools are facing schools are doing well over their pay grade already as i said and as paul expressed in the chat um, schools are acting as social worker police officers um, counselors, health visitors, nurses, and GP receptionists. We do all these tasks already, and we can't stretch the workload more than that. Add to that teaching and sometimes tutoring, which is our original job description. So schools can pick up the children who need help, and we know who need help. If you give me a class, I can teach them for an hour. After an hour, I can tell you the four or five children who need help. This is something we feel. Um, with experience, we know it instantly. We know the children who are going to need support for behavior, uh, support for um, their diet, support for... for we, we can tell because we're teachers and we know our students. But the problem is that we do not have the means to cater for these children properly. So I know who needs one-to-one nutrition, and I don't have any members of staff who has time enough to do it. I know children in my school who cannot read. I'm in a secondary school and I know children who can't read. I have flagged it and yet we don't have the means to deal with these children. So neglect happens at home but neglect perpetuates itself at school. And I want people to be aware of this. Schools are not always able to deal with the issues, so we just let them fester. What schools need to get if we want to just solve the issues we face on a daily basis, we need to have on site, and I'm saying that for every school, too often, we make a list of things that don't go well in education, but we don't offer a solution. Well, the easiest solution is to create a health hub in every school in the UK. In the health hub, you would have a nurse and this nurse would be there on a full-time basis. Every time the school is opened, the nurse should be there. So from 7.40 in the morning till 4 p.m., the nurse should be on site. There should also be a psychiatric nurse because we do have a mental health crisis in the UK. We should have a social worker on site 
at a stretch, a doctor, a GP, or a GP surgery on site, a psychologist, and we could share a dentist over two or three schools. But we should have these professionals inside the school building. Why? Because a school is a wonderful place where we get up to a thousand, sometimes more, a thousand individuals. These thousand people are going to be our next nurses, lawyers, truck drivers, bus drivers, um, delivery, food delivery driver. They're going to be our future. These young individuals need food, shelter, housing, and they need their medical needs to be um, ensured. If we do not have the staff on site, we lose the opportunity to do it where it counts. It's just a simple, basic thing. We need a health hub. It could look like a GP surgery, but it would be inside the school building. It makes sense. Instead of having a dentist in one street, a GP in another street, a nurse attached to the local health visiting unit, it makes sense to have it all under one roof. And also, you go where your consumers are. The consumers the health consumers are our children. So let's have the specialists who can provide the care that teachers are not trained for on site. I am not a health visitor. I have enough medical knowledge to take care of my family, but I'm not medically trained to take care of children who have abscess in their gums or um, have suffered physical abuse or sexual abuse. We need nurses and GPs for that. Every school in every part of the country, for every cl classroom of 30 children, there will be three children who have been experiencing sexual harassment or sexual abuse. That's a lot of children who are in dire need of support. If we had a nurse or a GP or a psychiatric nurse on site or a psychologist, they could go to the source of the problem and help the children so that they do not start um, being absent from school. Uh, they do not start taking drugs to deal with the pain they're going through. So it's really what I'm describing here is nothing revolutionary. It's just prevention. We need to go at the root of the problem and it is preventative. We do already have a police officer on site in most schools ask your children if you do not believe me. It is happening already. Now, I think it's quite telling that the only professional that we brought into schools is a police officer. It's too late, isn't it, when you already need um, police to deal with antisocial behavior. The, the damage has been done. So could we just change our mindset and look at prevent preventative measures. So instead of, I'm, I'm really happy with my um, on-site police officer. He's a lovely man and he's really, really helpful because he knows the community very well. But as we have a police officer on-site, could we also have a nurse and a GP and a psychologist on-site full-time? This is a simple, you might think it's costly, but I'm sure it costs way more when we let children become substance abusers or you're going to need way more police officers to deal with the aftermaths of a deprived 
childhood. So when I'm talking about this, preventative measures, I want to pinpoint the fact that we are not meeting the needs of our children. Now, you're going to say it starts at home and I will I will completely agree with you. Parents need to take responsibility for their child. If you have a child in 2023, usually it's because you wanted a child because contraception is free and available. So you should take the responsibilities. Now, if you don't, then the state should step in on behalf of the child because the child is one of us and we all need to care for our children. But the problem is if the state ignores the needs of these neglected children, then the state becomes complicit. And this is state neglect I want to talk about now. If you look at the Convention of the Rights of the Child, it requires that every country in the world should protect children against, I quote, all forms of physical and mental violence, injury or abuse, neglect or negligent treatment, maltreatment or exploitation, including sexual abuse. That's the Article 19 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, of which we signed. The UK and most countries in Europe have signed a convention. If parents are failing, the state has to step up. Now, the problem, state neglect, is when children are being failed and then the state doesn't step in properly. So, in some countries, it's obvious there's no free education for children or there is no hospitals. So, that is a clear state neglect problem. But state neglect might also occur when a child is given some support but not adequate enough to protect that child. Now, neglect is a feature of many, many countries through the institutions of these countries. And if you are aware of our history, if I talk about the Magdalene sisters, if I talk about um, what happened in hospitals uh, with Jimmy Saville, Operation U-Tree, uh, what happened within the Catholic Church, what happened in America, for instance, with the American Boy Scout Association, you will know that our institutions are sometimes guilty of um, severe emotional and sexual abuse against children. But our current institutions, our schools and our hospitals, are sometimes still guilty of putting health and lives of children at risk. And you might think I'm being controversial. You might say, there's no child who is at risk in our schools in the UK. Well, I would just say one word, rack. And if you're aware of what goes on in the UK, you will know that sometimes our institutions are guilty of not taking care of our citizens. So shelter is a human basic needs. Everybody needs shelter. Every animal has a need for shelter. Um, think about birds nesting or 
or foxes barring underneath the garden shed. Everybody needs shelter. Children need shelter because they're human beings. And yet in the news in the UK, and it's not so new if you look at uh, the report, in 2018 in Kent, a primary school had a roof collapsed. Thankfully, during the weekend, so no one was hurt. This happened in 2018. And then after that, there was a National Audit Office, NAO report, that said the following year, so quite a few years ago, that the concrete that ha had um, been damaged in that school in Kent had been confirmed as being present in other buildings in the UK, at least 65 schools. So, and it required emergency action. That was before the pandemic in 2018, 2019. Now, according to the Department for Education, which is an institution that has safeguarding of children in its agenda, 572 schools answered a survey about RAC, but more than a third of school buildings, 38% in the UK, which is 24,000 schools, are past their estimated design lifespan, which means that the way they were built was for a certain amount of time, maybe 30 to 40 years. And these schools are over the retirement age for school buildings. So this means that our fifth economy in the world, the UK, is unable to provide shelter for its school children when they go to school because either the children are in, in schools that are past their sell by date, or they might even contain, the buildings might contain a, a rack concrete that is dangerous to use. So this is for shelter. And remember, there was an article in The Guardian about, I quote the title, revealed, one in six schools in England require urgent repairs. So if it's urgent, when was this article published, I might ask? Well, it dates from Sunday the 8th of December 2019. So that was before the pandemic and we had quite a few lockdowns where we could have checked if our schools were safe to use and yet it wasn't done. The uh, journalist was called Francis Perraudin. So we see that our institutions are not putting our children's lives. Um, they are putting our children's lives at risk by providing unfit for purpose buildings. Now, what about food? And this is something that our um, listener, Paul, was saying. Paul was saying that children are eating um, diets that are not fit for purpose. You could argue this is the parent's responsibility. And this is true, but you could also look at free school meals. Now, what are free school meals? Just over 2 million children in the UK are given free school meals. And this is according to government figures. I'm not making this up as I go along. This is 23% of state school children who get a free school meals. And obviously, depending on where you live, the number rises. If you live in the Northeast, it's 30% of children. And if you live in the Southeast, it's 18%. 
In London, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has decided that all the primary school children in year one and two would get free school meals. So you have an additional 280,000 pupils were given free school meals. In Northern Ireland, there's 100,000 children who are given these free school meals, which represent 30% of the total school population in Northern Ireland. Now in Wales, same thing, 100,000 pupils are eligible. Some of these children are eligible, but they rather bring a pack lunch, but that's still a very small minority. Now, according to the Scottish government's most recent data, it's only 360,000 pupils in primary who are eligible for free school meals in Scotland, but it's still an increase of more than 100,000 from the previous year. So you can see that a lot of children are receiving free school meals from the state, which is a good thing. But what does it mean if we look behind the data? Children get free school meals because their parents are not making enough money. You might be eligible for free school meals if you are on income support, income-based job seekers allowance, income-related employment and support allowance, if you are uh, supported under part six of the Immigration and Asylum Act, if you receive a pension credit, if you receive child tax credit, working tax credit, or universal tax credit. So anyone whose wages are not high enough to support life in the UK with all the costs that it entails, housing, electricity, gas, food, tax, etc. All these people will receive free school meals. According to the big issue, um, there was a research that found free school meals could actually generate billions for the UK economy, outweighing the cost of the measure. So the big issue is advocating for all children to get free school meals. Commissioned by the Impact for Urban Health and analyzed by the PwC, an analysis found that if we spend one pound and we invest it in providing meals for children, and, and this is for children in households on universal credit, so poor children, poor household, out of that one pound that is spent, it would bring a return by one pound 38. So this is a good investment because over the next 20 years, through core benefits, we have an improved social, health, and educational status. Many countries offer free school meals for all, and it has a virtuous effect. The Labour MP Zara Sultana is fighting for free school meals for all, and this would obviously cost a lot of money, but it might help saving a lot of money by reducing uh, malnutrition and obesity and also showing the students and the children that we care about their well-being making them feel valued and that is obviously the the best way to make our children feel better about themselves such an expansion that is to say giving free school meals to all children on universal credit would feed an extra 800,000 children so this is a pro 
progressive measure. But it is not the choice our government has been making over the last 14 years. Infants' free school meals are given for year one reception class and year two students. This is to ensure that these children are fed. As I said, we have three basic needs. So we talked about shelter and we saw that many schools are unfit for use at the moment, which is a total government failure. Now, with the free school meals, we also see that too many children are not eligible and then they do not get the nutrition they need. If we look now at safety, what is going on in our schools? Well, weapons and violence are on the rise. And I'm quoting an article that is published on Schools Week. Sunday, the 24th of September, 2023, there was an article about weapons and violence. Data obtained by Schools Week reveal a large increase in police calls out to school over the past five years, with children as young as 10 bringing weapons. And there was another report, major Ofsted report published on Tuesday of this week, this past week, that warned that schools do not receive enough support to tackle rising knife crime. I'm very thankful for my PC, my police officer on site, but he's alone not able to stop all the knife crime in my area. We need something done quickly. So the Department for Ed Education has been given some guidance and Amanda Spielman, the Chief Inspector of Ofsted, has said that we need to obviously tackle this crisis of bringing weapons into school. She says, there is a harmful narrative that exclusion must cause children to join gangs or carry knives. But she says that um, children who are excluded do not go into very poor quality alternative provision. On the contrary, I'm quoting Amanda Spielman, she says, over 80% of state-funded registered AP and PRUs are rated good or outstanding by inspectors, and of those pupils not on a state school role at age 16, few get there directly via exclusion from a mainstream school. What she thinks is dangerous and can increase the rise in weapons and knife crime is that off-rolling and managed moves to unregistered or illegal AP or to no education, employment or training at all are more concerning because we do not know where the children in these settings are safe, let alone being educated. So that's the message from Ofsted. Saying that, I feel like Ofsted is sending mixed messages because Many head teachers are being shamed if their exclusion rates are really high, which makes them opt for these off-rolling and managed moves. So mixed messages there. Saying that, in an Ofsted report from 2019, there was already concerns about safeguarding. And the recommendations were clear, but they haven't been followed. The recommendations were improving partnership working and strategic planning having local community safety partnership with PRUs and schools, having local strategies to address knife crime, 
making sure exclusion policy reflect the practice set out in the Department for Education statutory guidance, making sure the Department for, Educa for Education collects data and uh, from schools about managed moves, and also a big, big, big advice that I also promote is early, early help and prevention. That was the recommendation four and five, making sure young people's needs are met, safeguarding is working, and offering a good solid education with good information sharing about safety and knife crime. So this was the Ofsted recommendation for 2019 concerning safety. Have the numbers decreased since that report was published concerning knife crime and knife possession in schools? Not so much. So again, recommendations are made, reports are published, but then if there is no whole national plan promoted by all the institutions working in collaboration, reports are just used by myself when I read them out to you and nothing gets done. So what can teachers do? Well, they do it already. Teachers provide a personal social health and economic education in their PHSE curriculum. Teachers work really hard to promote um, a safe school environment. They do weapon searches. You might think this is too much like in the American model, but we have to do it. And uh, the head of years regularly do this. We also work on raising awareness of the dangers of grooming, gangs, county lines and criminal expectation. So neglect happens in the homes, but neglect also happens in school buildings. And when I say building, I also mean in the actual build. We can see that state neglect has an impact, not only family neglect. The Article 19 of the Convention on the children rights says that states have a responsibilities. But the problem is that we can see sometimes that our own government and our own institutions are being neglectful. Do you see neglect in your own institution, in your school? If yes, we need to raise the alarm and we need to work together. It's a movement that will come from the grassroots. It never actually comes from the top. Safeguarding is through collaboration. We saw it with the Rotherham case of sexual abuse. It was only because there was a diligent health visitor who gathered data and kept calling uh, social services and the cops and the media that the girls finally got heard after many years of abuse. We need to be that person who writes it down. We need to be that person who rings the alarm bell. We need to be that person who asks several institutions to work together. Whether it's about concrete, whether it's about safeguarding, whether it's about children who are not being given the education they need. Repression is too often the government's first choice of action, which is why we have a police officer on site, but not a nurse or a dentist or a psychologist. A child psychologist. The health hub is a necessity. Every school is a place of nurturing, 
Every school should be a place where children are safe. It makes sense to have a medical team on site to prevent physical harm from happening or develop or fester. Before a child has an abscess in their gums and comes to the classroom teacher and complains about pain, we should have medical visits often on site. Only prevention work works and rehabilitation as well. So there is many questions we need to ask about our institutions. Does it make sense that the, st the start of the school day is so early, whereas teenagers need to sleep long hours? Does it make sense to ask young teenage boys to spend six hours seated? Does it make sense to give them only half an hour to eat a nutritious meal? And can it be nutritious if it's wolfed down? Young, healthy children need to exercise daily. Do we let our young children and our young teenagers exercise daily? Is it part of our curriculum? The school day needs to be formulated to suit the physical needs of children. It's a total revolution we need to put in place if we want to meet the needs of our neglected children. Too often, we try to palliate what they go through. For instance, I'll give you a personal example. We have a student who it comes to school unwashed, unkept. So we considered finding a budget to buy a washing machine to wash that child's uniform. But we we don't, we don't really have showering facilities and it would also be a safeguarding difficulty to make sure that child is showered every day. Before we get to that stage, couldn't we just have a simple system where we have an on-site social worker and an on-site nurse who can see the problem before it's, it takes root and coordinate with the parents and make sure the parents is taught and trained to take care of their own children. With the Shirt Start Centers in the early noughties, we had the beginning of a, an attempt from the government to palliate the needs of the children because the most important years are the early years from zero to five. This has been forgotten since the pandemic. We need to go back to that and start again. Prevention, prevention, prevention. I hope this has just started to scratch at the subject. This is a very complicated subject, neglect. But I just wanted to show that there is neglect at home, but there is also neglect inside our institution. And unless we are transparent about it and really look at ourselves and the way we treat our, our children and really reassess what we want to do and what we're doing. This is the only way if we want to make change really happen. So I'm wishing you all a very good Sunday evening and a good week. And um, I'll see you next Sunday at 5 p.m. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.